0: Having interrupted the tea party, so, so uh, if anyone has any particular questions you'd like to, to ask relating to what I was uh, presenting or um, your related themes, then uh, don't be shy. These afternoons are, are for you, so uh, please uh, don't, uh, don't hold back. So if there's something that would be useful to, um, to ask uh, for me to speak a bit more on, then uh, please ask away. And there's a a microphone that uh, uh, I would ask people to wait until it arrives so you can speak into it so everyone can hear the question. So everyone has arrived at perfect contentment, all doubts are finished.
1: Thank you very much for the very useful Dhammato Kajan. There's one thing I want to get a clarification. You mentioned about uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and you get the 50% success in America and here. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are doing mindfulness things to get rid of certain illnesses. Uh, my way of understanding that uh, to get the sati which is the mindfulness, you need to have the sealer. If you don't have the five precepts, if you don't follow, if you don't observe, you won't be able to get the sammasati. So, how did these people get this fifty percent success? Did they follow the five precepts or not?
0: Uh, good question. <laughs> this is a much discussed topic in the in the field. Um, I couldn't say for sure, but. Um, the, uh, I know that Mark Williams, uh, who was the, um, the founder of the Oxford Mindfulness Center and one of those three original experimenters, he's very keen to have no um, specific, explicit mention of Sila in terms of mindfulness trainings. And it's kind of related to a, a therapist isn't supposed to tell the client what they should or shouldn't do, I mean, roughly speaking and so that you're not to make value judgments about someone's behavior. So it's, it's kind of influenced by the therapeutic model rather than the Buddhist model in that aspect of it. Um, I've been asked to give talks on this, to two or three different conferences, on this area of sila and mindfulness. And, uh, and so I feel that it's, uh, it's good to recognize that when we use the word mindfulness, there's a, a variety of different... Qualities that are being talked about, so that uh, and all the different kinds of mindfulness, are, I would say, are, are useful, but they're useful to different degrees. So the um, uh, the first level of of mindfulness you, you can say is sati on its own. It's not samasati, sati, just sati. You know that which is you know, paying attention to the present moment. So the mind, basically, not caught up in distraction, but, but attending to the to the present and attuned to a degree uh, to the present actions and feelings and attitudes so that uh, i would say that's a a functional mindfulness or a mechanistic mindfulness and so that's not connected with sila at all so you can you can mindfully um, it with using that kind of degree of mindfulness it's the same like Ajahn samatha would say it's the kind of mindfulness that a squirrel needs to jump through the branches of a tree or the mindfulness of a cat hunting a mouse. There's no moral element, but the, you know the cat is really paying attention. You know, the squirrel is skillfully jumping to land on the on the next twig, um, and so that that kind of mechanistic or, or um, functional mindfulness uh, doesn't. I would say that doesn't have any kind of element of sila in it, uh, and so that it. But then the, the benefits of it are are, um, are less profound. So, then the, the next level of mindfulness is what I would call informed mindfulness or sati sampajanya, mindfulness and uh, clear awareness or mindfulness and, and clear comprehension. Uh, and Lumpur Sameto's term, um, uh, intuitive awareness, is his translation of sati sampajanya. So, that means, uh, uh, and this is where Sila comes in, that, um, that if the mindfulness is going to be um, really comprehensive, or more effective, uh, then it needs to have an attunement to the time, the place, the situation. So nowadays, they, they avoid talking about behavior in terms of you know, moral, the, the, the M word. You know, they don't like morality <laughs> in these psychological profiles. But I've noticed that in the last few years, compassion has come in as a big feature. So it's kind of sealer by the back door, if you like. Um, That is, you're not talking about, you know, you shouldn't harm people, but rather if you are compassionate towards yourself and you're compassionate towards others, then the urge to harm uh, or the the recognition that a certain behavior is going to cause harming will have an effect on you. So if your motivation towards mindfulness is more woven in with compassion, then it kind of brings sila with it. There's a respectfulness for the the feelings, the perceptions, the experience of of others uh, as well. So that, uh, and it's, I'm not sure if the people who are writing these books or presenting these programs would see it in the same way, but from my perspective, uh, the, uh, just seeing that kind of come in, coming in, the compassion aspect coming in as a second wave, you know, my, uh, um, that, um, I feel it's trying to address the same area because it's, uh, you're recognizing that you can mindfully act in a way that is really harmful to others or harmful to yourself. And that, <clears throat> you know you're you're deliberately acting you know, in a certain way but the you're know, you're causing damage like and particularly so, mindfulness in the military and the you know the mindful sniper question you know that uh, the and it is a, a a very hot debate because if you if you do a um uh, you know if, if you do a google search for mindfulness um and uh uh, you know, there's a lot of things that are related, not just to the business world or to um, to physical health or mental health, but also to military activity or and criminal justice and such like. If you Google um, mental fitness training, that's a whole huge program in the American, American military for like mindfulness for the um, for soldiers and uh, in the military field. So it's a, it's a debate. You know, the, do you want soldiers that are more mindful and more Attentive to what they're doing. Do do you feel that they cause less damage if they're focused on what they're doing? Or do they cause more damage? So it's a it's a hot topic and and there's the strong feelings in in both directions Um, But I would say the more that uh, someone who's in the military is Sensitive to the people that they have got in their sights (laughs) Then they can't uh, they can't ignore the fact that's a human being down there. These human beings, just like me, they have feelings. They have family members. They have uh, they have a, a right to live, just like I do. You know, what, what gives me the authority, the right to to push the button, pull the trigger? There's a, an interest. I haven't seen the movie, but I saw a a, a review of it. Um, I think Helen Mirren is plays a a, a colonel in the British Army. I think it's called something like Eye in the Sky. And it's these same kind of moral issues. She's a she's a colonel of a drone unit, and you know, they're sending uh, drones in to carry out uh, military strikes. And these moral issues come up. So, uh, so I would say that area of sati sampajanya you can't possibly be sampajanya if you're ignoring the feelings of the other beings that your actions and your attitudes are, are touching. That that's that's an intrinsic part of it, and. It's also interesting as a, as a side uh, question or a side aspect that uh, yeah, you know, Luoatoto, he started to use the term. he coined the term intuitive awareness, because he felt mindfulness and clear comprehension was not very accurate, because you can be fully mindful of something that you don't comprehend. You can uh, you can be you can be mindfully out in the dark and not know where you are. <laughs> You can be fully aware that you're in the dark and you can't see, but you still can't see. Uh, so that you can be mindful of not understanding something. And so that he, he used the word intuitive to represent that sense of, it's not, it's not just a, 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 um, to do with a, um, uh, say, a, a cognitive understanding, like a conceptual understanding, but it's a quality of, of, of attunement and a sensitivity to a situation even if you can't understand it or explain it or describe what's going on. So then the, the third level of mindfulness, which I would call satipanya, I would call a, a, a holistic mindfulness, because that's taking in the whole picture. And so that's also to uh, a mindfulness that's based um, on a, a, a complete attunement to the, the present reality and is not influenced by self-view. Uh, or the biases of greed, hatred, and, and delusion. So satipanya is like the real samasati. You know, that, that, and that's that's a um, kind of Olympic standard mindfulness. <laughs> so that means, you know, in any moment, just like I was saying about the world is in your mind, it's recognizing, yes, you've asked this question, you know, you're hearing the words that I'm saying, and you're following... Um, the the meaning, uh, hopefully, (laughs) of what I'm saying, but you're also aware, oh, this is hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, these are patterns of thought and concept arising and passing away within awareness, and I call this my mind, or me listening, but that's just a convenient fiction. So that it's recognizing that, if you like, the phenomenological uh, nature of experience, moment by moment, as well as uh, paying attention to the the, the particular content is seeing it. Uh, basically, uh, the flow of experience is all anicca-dukkha-anatta. As well as, what's the right word to choose? Am I understanding that? I should remember that uh, for the future. That was a good point, or I don't agree with that. Um, and it's also recognizing well whether I agree or I don't. I don't agree. That's still anicca-dukkha-anatta. Whether I understand it, or I don't understand it. That's still anicca-dukkha-anatta. Uh, so that that satipanya, uh, that that third level of holistic mindfulness, is um, much harder to establish or to sustain. But usually when we're in a meditation retreat or we're practicing um, insight meditation, vipassana, that's particularly geared to the development of that that kind of acute, sort of Olympic-grade mindfulness. (laughs) And that for most people, it's when we have a a very um, benign situation, like being on a meditation retreat, you haven't got any personal responsibilities, you're keeping noble silence, you have a routine, everyone around you is keeping the precepts very strictly, so it's very safe, very benign, Uh, there's no decision-making you have to to, uh, pursue. So the field of experience is very non-personal. It's in those sort of most supportive conditions that then we get the clearest opportunity to develop that kind of satipanya. But the point of retreats or, or developing insight meditation is uh, developing the strength so that then that can be applied more and more. So that when you're on the tube, when you're being squished, then you can also recognize oh, this is just the Nietzsche dukkha anatta. It's just feeling, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, arising, passing away. That's all. So that. Um, in the, uh, I would. It's interesting. I mean, there's huge numbers of of studies are done on you know, academic studies are done on mindfulness nowadays, and uh, there's a few people that are addressing the area of sila, and and its effect in the in the picture, but um, the people who've been the founders of it, like say uh, John Kabat-Zinn, uh, Mark Williams, uh, John Teasdale, and so forth, they have. Uh, to so far as far as I know, they've deliberately avoided bringing in sila as a, a um a sort of specific part of the training. I've proposed myself a few developments, like maybe this is the next stage after compassion we'll get you know, behavior, <laughs> uh, but behavior therapy. You know. but we'll recognize you know if I, don't lie to, if I don't lie to people, I feel much better about myself. <laughs> You know, if I don't kill things, or, you know, harm or, or harm things, then uh, then my basic level of self respect seems to be much much higher. But uh, th- those programs haven't quite been developed yet. There's a hand at the back there. Yes, if you can wait for the microphone to reach you.
2: Thank you, thank you for the Dharma talk today, Ajahn. Um, I happen to be one of these so-called therapists who doesn't practice uh, cognition, but I do try and practice mindfulness. I did find myself very outraged in my, in my professional field when I saw the Buddha being colonized because being from India, I thought I, had, I have the only right to the Buddha and nobody else should. But uh, to answer the gentleman's question about the practice of sila, I don't know how much uh, we can help our clients or patients, how, how much we are allowed within the profession to instruct the patients. But what I find helps me is the practice of Sila myself. So I am somehow able to receive the other. In, in, I think, in a, in a little bit more awakened way. And I find, nowadays especially, that I can teach people to observe their mind and that it matters. So I just wanted to share that, that mm-hmm. somehow, in a roundabout way, it is influencing. I'm not instructing people to practice sila because I lose them straight away. <laughs> <laughs> but I am being able to you know, use myself and use teaching somehow. Mm-hmm. So I hope I
0: hope what I've said is useful. Yeah, that's that's a very good point, and I think because uh, I, I lived in the States for a long time, and there, you know, I had many discussions about this over over time, and that uh, people who were therapists they were they could lose their license if they told somebody you know you should stop lying to your partner, yeah, you know, that uh, they you know they they would be you know not not able to practice as a therapist if they made those kind of "Quote unquote" value judgments about people's behavior, so it's a, it's a tricky area. But I think the point that you make is that you can take that responsibility yourself, and then that has its effect upon your patients, uh, and that the standard that you set for yourself, uh, you know, there, there's a I know there's certain boundaries that you set. You can't really talk about your own life or your own standards, but who you are and how you function <laughs> conveys itself. Uh, uh, in certain ways, uh, verbal and, and non-verbal ways, and I think that that that's a, a very good point. That the the standards that you keep for yourself have uh, a uh, an effect to a greater or lesser extent on the people that you're you're interacting with. Like uh, I spent a lot of time with people um, in recovery from uh, alcohol addiction, drug addiction uh, over the years, and. Um, when somebody who's trying to to get off their addiction to alcohol, when they're with someone who's sober and who, who doesn't drink and doesn't need to drink, you know, I'm, I'm speaking of someone who, who did drink a lot you know, between 15 and 20, 21, that <laughs> uh, it's a it's it conveys something incredibly helpful to them that uh, you you can live. Uh, and be a a kind of a free, independent person away from those habituations and then having a living example that's face-to-face with you is uh, something that uh, has a profound effect and is really deeply encouraging. So any other questions? Yes, Martin, if you can wait for the microphone. It's coming behind you. Thank you. Is that
1: working? Good. Uh, thank you very much for a very interesting talk. And the first two questions are also very valuable. And the replies. But um of course it it, it isn't it's a very difficult problem that we face. Um a lot of people are wearing T-shirts which say that um uh, life without Dhamma is... Uh, sorry, life without sealer is like driving a car without brakes. Well, a car can be driven without brakes. <laughs> uh, but I would say well, like a car without steering uh, because if there is no steering, it definitely can't be driven. Uh, the I'm somewhat saddened by various lack of sealer in certain places, like Thailand is a, is a nominally a Buddhist country, and yet they still have officially the death penalty for certain crimes, although it hasn't been carried out for about uh, nine years, something like that. However, there are quite a number of people on death row who every day might be their last, and so that is torture. And the sealer doesn't actually dot the I's and and cross the T's, Uh, torture is also wrong. There are some things which are unskillful, and uh, the the, uh, sealer does instruct us that uh, we should try to live skillfully. Uh, the um, um, precept about... The first precept is impossible to keep as, uh, in, in its fullness because by being on the planet, you are heim- harming other forms of life. So if you want to save the planet, get off the planet. <laughs> but there is a sort of tolerance... But then there. we'd
0: miss you, Martin.
1: Oh uh, maybe <laughs> maybe but uh, I would hope so, but um I'm going to uh, revert to my uh chemical form within the next dozen years perhaps or less <laughs> who knows but so um it, it's uh it, it's it's uh, something uh it's a matter of um tolerance. Towards various things. What can't be, um, what can't be, um, what you can't mend, you have to tolerate, unfortunately. And millions of people died in World War II because they had no choice other than to tolerate what was being done to them and they perished quite obviously in contravention of the first precept. So the the koan arises that if there's one thing I can't stand, it's intolerance. <laughs> and how can we resolve that? Well, the nature of a koan is that it can't be resolved. So that's a meditation object. And I believe that sila in its ideal, could be developed um, on an individual basis. Yes, okay, so we don't kill people. Uh, but uh, Or we don't encourage others to kill people. Or we don't encourage others to kill animals. Or it can go on and on. And the old um, rabbinical um, interpretation would be that we should draw, we should build a fence around the Torah. Torah being the rather, rather primitive equivalent of um, Dhamma. Uh, so, yes, uh, So the, the fences mean that we shouldn't even approach the, uh, the c- a complete disregard of the precept. It's, uh, it's an ideal world and we don't live in an ideal world but we've got to live in the world that's the uh, so the question is how do we tolerate intolerance
0: <laughs> the um, I think the, the most helpful uh, approach is to be able to look at our own intolerance yeah. Because uh, if I want to fix you, I want to fix Martin's intolerance problem. I'm already driving from the back seat, yeah. so that uh, the more that um, I can get familiar with that feeling that arises in my heart, like that's outrageous, yeah, yeah, that's that's <clears throat> that's not acceptable. The more that that can be known and the energy of that can be felt, can be understood. say, well, yeah, that's an impulse that. That you know, I have a body, I have a mind, so those kind of impulses arise, and that in recognizing that uh, that doesn't have to be suppressed, it doesn't have to be followed, but it can be known, and that in our best moments we're able to recognize um, that uh, that impulse arises and say, okay, well that's that's there, it's come into being, that's outrageous, that's unacceptable. Well, that's the that's the, that's unacceptable feeling. <laughs> now, uh, given that that has arisen and, here, and it feels like this, uh, what's the best way of, of communicating this? Or what's a way that this can be acted on that will a- a- uh, communicate what is felt here, but can be received? Because it's a communication, re- depends on a transmitter and a receiver. If it's just a transmission, a proclamation, and the receiver is switched off, there's no communication. So that uh, in order to, um, say, have benefit in some ways, then to, to consider, well, how can, uh, if I'm feeling uh, indignant or feeling um, uh, in, intolerant, uh, how can uh, that... Uh, behavior be addressed, or how can that person be changed, or uh, how can the situation be worked so that the other person will be able to hear what is being said, they'll be able to receive it. And like our friend there was saying about being a therapist, without even saying to somebody, you'd know, you be a lot happier if you weren't lying to your spouse all the time, or if you stopped drinking so much, Um, uh, that just the fact that you're sober and that you don't lie... (laughs) Uh, that uh, that communicates itself, and so that sometimes the the that just a moment of pause, like half a second, whereby we recognise that the feeling and go, oh, that's a strong one. <laughs> just giving ourselves just a small amount of space around that before we come out with a, a comment or before we we jump in. That that's all that's needed. It doesn't have to be kind of some kind of uh, uh, complicated. Uh, Approach, but just knowing your own feelings of intolerance and seeing how um, they are, uh, how natural they are, and but also how uh, there is a a choice that is made in relationship to those feelings. We can choose to follow them or not follow them. We can choose to follow them in various different ways, and that when we see that choice within ourselves, and we give ourselves that space to. Um, relate to those feelings in us then to a degree we also give that same kind of space to others so when someone expresses themselves to us being very kind of angry or indignant then uh, we are more able to say well that's that's their right to have that opinion if they want to carry that around that's their business i don't have to make it my mission to stop them thinking that way and then that my experience is that when you give somebody that kind of a space, it's like they are sort of pushing against an open door. That they, if you're saying you, know, you can't think like that, that's totally wrong. How dare you? Then you've got to fight. <laughs> if uh, you give someone that uh, that space to say, well, if they want to, f- if you want to think that, that's totally your business. I don't see it quite that way myself, but if that's how you see it, that's 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 uh, up to you. And if you're meaning that in a not in a condescending way or patronizing way but that you are quite sincere then they haven't got a fight they they're they they're pushing against an open door and and often the result of that is that it it um it changes the the dynamic of the of the contact the the uh, they, uh the person will you know, get more of a perspective on what they're doing or, or, or what they're, they're carrying around within themselves. Not always, I and mean, it can take a long time sometimes. But uh, that uh, that extra little bit of spaciousness in ourself is, is a gift to others as well. fact, like when the, the Buddha was attacked verbally by uh, this Brahmin called um, Akosaka Bharadvaja, his nickname was Bharadvaja the Abusive, even after he became an arahant, he was still known as Bharadvaja the abusive, <laughs> and uh, you know the, he was really upset because the Buddha was sort of undermining the whole social structure of the the warrior nobles and the Brahmins and the and the merchants and the the workers and so on, and that you know, people from all castes were you know, welcome into the Buddha's uh, sangha and he was sort of dissolving the caste system in in the sangha, so this Brahmin was very upset with him, and uh, the Buddha said to him. Um, Bharadvaja, can I ask you a question? And he said, yes. So is it the case that you sometimes have friends or family coming to visit you? Of course, you know, I'm an ordinary householder, people come and visit me all the time, so why do you ask? Well, if you have people that come and visit you, family or friends, um, is it the case that you would offer them some kind of refreshment of food or drink or something of that nature? Well, of course, that's a polite thing to do. I would always do that. You know, it's just anyone, any decent person would do that. You know, why do you ask? And the Buddha said, well, if um, some family or friends come to visit and then you offer them some refreshment, some food or drink, and they, they decline it, they, they say, no, thank you, to whom does that food and drink belong? Well, it belongs to me, of course. I mean, I've offered it to them and they haven't accepted it, so it's mine. What are you you getting at? This is ridiculous. And the Buddha said, Well, Brahmin, you offer me your anger. I don't accept it. So it belongs to you. It belongs to you, Brahmin. So it's like he's thrown down the gauntlet. It's a nice glove. You know, you want to pick that up otherwise you won't have a pair, you know. (laughs) So then the... Bharadvaja was uh, very impressed by this exchange and became a student of the Buddha and then eventually became a monk and became an Arahant. And as I said, even after he was an Arahant, he was still known as Bharadvaja the Abusive. That became his nickname for the rest of his life. Akosaka Bharadvaja. But that's that's, uh, very helpful because to see that the Buddha didn't reject him, didn't insult him, just didn't accept the angry feelings in the terms in which they were offered. They say, I'm not going to relate to you just by your angry feeling. I respect you as a human being. And so I'll, that's who I will address. But the anger is, is, you're creating that, so it belongs to you. How about this side of the room? Any, the uh, the people on the left are free of doubts. And, yeah. Yes, Mariana. Yeah. If you can wait for the microphone.
3: Thank you very much for your talk today, really fruitful and I'm slightly concerned about the communication between, and obviously we become very much uh, dependent on communication with uh, non-identified objects like robotic and satellite and systems, when... uh, we can't really <laughs> have much uh, understanding of uh, on the end receiver how we deal with that.
0: Well, there's usually a human in there somewhere.
3: Well, yes, <laughs> I agree, but we can't.
0: You mean if you if you uh, you make a phone call to the bank and you get relayed to you know. Option one, option two, option three, those kind of things.
3: That's that's kind of things. It's the least actually. Bank is not yeah. Cross borders and uh, calls that never happen and miss taking your contact list somewhere else and put it somewhere else. Things like that. <coughs>
0: Well, um, it's an interesting question. I think uh, I I never found it really bothering me that much um, that uh, there's a feeling of frustration sometimes. It would be nice to talk to a real human. It would be nice to talk to a real human. Um, But uh, it's also part of the the world that we we live in nowadays and that um, the... uh, uh, we're communicating across extra layers of of uh, of barrier. You know, that uh, and but also in a way, just uh, in, as in the theme of this of the afternoon's talk, is the more important thing is to look at that feeling of frustration or alienation that's arising within yourself. That uh, um, that sense of um, uh, I'm I'm being controlled by a machine, or I mean, I'm talking to a machine here. And that this is what this feeling is of, uh, of having to relate to a machine rather than a than a person. If I'm if I'm understanding what you're what you're saying, that because we can uh, even face to face with another human being, we can still experience lack of communication. <laughs> you know, or that you're you're, you're totally at cross purposes. you you're sort of face to face with someone, and what you're saying, they're not hearing. And what they're what they're saying, you you, know, you can't you can't uh, follow it either. You know you can't sort of tune into where that person is at. And so, lack of communication is not confined to machines. Um, so I'm not sure if that's what you're asking, but uh, I think just that sense of um, I wish I could get through here, or um, I'm not going. What, what did she say? Like I was at a uh, a school, visiting a school the other day. And um one of the pupils uh had some learning difficulties and um and she was speaking to to me and to the rest of the class and I couldn't follow what she was saying her her speech was was quite slurred, but one of the other pupils sort of stepped in and, and he translated for her so it was very sweet he kind of because i i guess this this look on my face was like. I wish I could understand what she's saying, but I really haven't got a clue. <laughs> and she was very sincere. She was speaking on and on about trying to say something, and I, I couldn't, I really couldn't get it. And this other little boy kind of stepped in, and, and he was relaying what she was saying and explaining to me. And it was really helpful. So that uh, that sometimes the, uh, a lack of communication in one area can can bring forth other, uh, other connections that you find... You're, um, you're able to um, say uh, bond with others more closely because of your mutual frustration of having to talk to machines or <laughs> having your uh, an upgrade happen to your system like what happened? where, where have my contacts gone? oh no I've been upgraded <laughs> yeah. so uh, sometimes I talk to my screen my computer screen and say I wish you'd stop being so helpful <laughs> please stop helping me you know it's really annoying, yeah. but uh, and I realize I'm talking to an inanimate object here, <laughs> but there's that feel, you know, in a way, it helps to have that feeling of like please stop being helpful, like autocorrect you know we, because of you know we have a lot of parley words and and so that uh to try and teach each machine to stop correcting it, you. Know, when I'm writing um, "perita," it's "perita," it's not "partition." You know, <laughs> please stop helping me. You know. and so you know it's a bit ridiculous in some respects, but it's able to express a feeling. It's, yeah, it's natural enough and you know harmless enough. If anyone here works for, for uh, computer programs, be uh, easier ways to switch off the autocorrecting helpful functions would be much appreciated. <laughs> Does that address what you were asking about?
3: Yeah,
0: I think you are switched off then.
3: Obviously the human beings supposedly makes the robots, but the robots doesn't seem to pre- keep the precepts, you know, in a sense. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, they probably keep them better than the humans do. <laughs> <laughs> now I think we, we, uh, we can expect too much, um, you know, in, in sometimes both from humans and, and from machines because, you know, one of the interesting things, I bring this up quite often when talking with people, particularly when people are having struggles with relationships in their family or in their workplace, and, and um, you know, in, in Buddhist psychology, the standard for sanity is arahantship. So you're not sane until you're totally enlightened. So anyone who's not an arahant is at some degree of insanity. So this is life in the psych ward. So seriously, that's that's the standard. You're not entirely sane until you're an arahant. We suffer a lot because we keep expecting people who are guided by greed, hatred, and delusion to be acting like arahants. So when somebody is selfish. How can how can he do that? That's that's really awful. How can he be that way? You know, a politician has lied to get reelected. What? But that's just not true. They lied to everybody. A politician lied. Well, golly. <laughs> <laughs> that 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 uh, that began with human village life about three hundred thousand years ago. <laughs> so you know when. Uh, and I'm not excusing bad behavior, but rather if you consider that, that we are sharing the psychiatric ward with a lot of fellow inmates, we can be a lot more forgiving. We don't expect everyone to behave like the totally competent consultant you know, in charge of the hospital. You know? But we're just, this is our fellow inmates. So of course they're going to be a bit erratic and a bit confused and a bit selfish and chaotic and greedy and wild because we're, we're, all, on, we're, all, we're all on the psych ward. And then, when you you kind of don't expect so much from your fellow human beings, you find that you you're creating less of a sense of outrage or indignation, you know, and, and that there's a more compassion for for each other, and that uh, you're a um, you know, more compassion for your own shortcomings, your own failures, not just to excuse you from not trying to do better, but but it means we make. Make space for each other. You know, it's it, I'm, when I, I read the news reports, and you know, some really horrible, terrible things happen in the in the world all the time. But the kind of moral outrage that arises, you know, often it's like, well, yeah, people are, they're expecting too much of each other. They they they're amazed that somebody is you know, that they're they're married to someone and their partner is looking at somebody else. Well, that never happened before. You know. <laughs> Or somebody t- takes on the, the, you know, the precepts of a, of a monk or a nun and they haven't completely ended sexual desire. You mean, it, 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 when you shave your head, it doesn't mean to say that all the you know, brahmacharya is just installed automatically? It's not like an automatic upgrade? to All sexual desire is switched off when you shave your head and put on a robe? Like, well, no. You know, <laughs> we have a very large section of our Vinaya discipline is about uh dealing with uh, sexual desires and and uh, how to uh say uh, negotiate with that that energy uh, because it doesn't just stop when you shave your head <laughs> yeah acquisition acquisitiveness that huge amount of the vinaya is about uh stopping monks from kind of deceiving people and acquiring property and and um uh kind of fraud and and uh, <laughs> the uh sort of manipulation for gains and and uh, uh, ways of uh, acquiring property and money and power and influence and such like, that uh, so that uh, like a Lumbhpor would say, uh, you know, the robe is not for arahants. You know, people would say oh, I, I I'm, I'm too impure because I have all these greedy thoughts. I'm, I'm just seething with jealousy. You know, I, I, I shouldn't be a monk. I'm corrupting the robe because I'm so jealous all the time. And it's exactly the kind of thing he would say to Lumpur Chah, you know, because he particularly he had a lot of jealousy uh, issues when he was a young monk, and uh, Cha would say the same kind of thing like, "Someto, you know." the robe is for people who are not yet our aunts. <laughs> don't think that just because you shave your head and you put on a robe that you're going to be you're going to like everybody and you're not you're never going to feel jealousy or irritation it's a, it's a method of training so it, when we we shift the perspective a little bit like that then we become much more compassionate you know we we're not again we're not excusing you know, really unskillful behavior but we're also recognizing, well, people are people. They're, they're they're guided by selfishness, greed, hatred, delusion a lot of the time. So we shouldn't expect them to be behaving like arahants when they and <laughs> those the, the reptiles are still getting out, you know. There's lots of gaps in the in the in the fence. <laughs> but that's also why the precepts are so helpful. It's like keeping that, that fence well established and keeping all the uh, velociraptors and and tyrannosauruses, you know, well, within the boundaries that uh, those those uh, unskilful forces of the heart—they're there. You, can, you, you you're not trying to suppress them or, or destroy them, but to 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 contain them so that their 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 activity is not harmful to oneself or to others. And and then the more they're understood, the more then uh, the mind can uh, evolve to a, a state that they they lose the ability for those urges to to dominate our actions. So I think that's enough for this afternoon. Thank you for your good questions and your good attention.